Well, good evening. How are you guys? Somebody said blessed. That's the right answer. Well, as we have seen over the last year, and even most recently in Europe, when a leader is leading a nation in the wrong direction, the people suffer. That's no surprise. And unfortunately, many times the people that suffer the most are the ones that have the least say. I'm not exactly sure why God allows things like this, but for his purposes, he certainly does. In the nation or the kingdom of Israel, during the time of David, there was a time when David, toward the end of his reign, got lifted up in pride. And he started to become self-reliant, and he started to look to his own strength. And in so doing, he became proud and decided to number the people. And it brought all kinds of trouble into Israel, all kinds of trouble into not only the nation, but also upon the people in that they suffered the result of David's failures. It is sad, and it is certainly not a good thing, but our leaders do oftentimes bring us to places of suffering or difficulty by their bad decisions, again, often driven by pride. I think this evening we want to really just focus in on our own lives and ask the question, are there areas in which we are making decisions and doing things that are driven by pride or, or a sense of self-reliance or independence from God? I think you're always going to play it safe when you are dependent upon God. When you're making a decision and you, and you think you might know the answer, but you go to God and you say, God, I'm not sure if I got this right. Lead me, direct me. Show me your will for my life. I know this, that he will lead us, he will guide us, he will direct us. Whether we're to, the tur- to turn to the left or the right, we'll hear that voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, this evening we submit to you our service and our hearts. And Lord God, we do desire to hear from you. We desire to glean wisdom and understanding from your word. We desire to not only read about the account of David, but to search our own hearts. May you search our hearts. Show us our hearts. We can't even know our own hearts, but you know our hearts. So show us who we are that we might become more like you. By the power of your spirit, through the study of your word, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, this evening, we are in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and in verse 1. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. We're going to read there in verse 1 that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. He incited David to take a census of Israel. Sir, you can come on in if you'd like. We're welcome. Oh, someone's parked in your driveway? Okay, well, uh, okay, cool. Thank you. Let's look at verse 1 again. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. We see here that the Lord was angry with the people of Israel. He was. And he allowed David to be incited against them. In fact, if you read in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, the parallel portion, and we'll be looking a little at that. I'll be referencing that this evening 
Uh, in 2 Samuel, I believe it's 24.1, uh, it says there that again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. So we get a little bit more information. And he incited David against them. And so in that portion of Scripture, it seems that the Lord incited David, but we know from this portion of Scripture that the Lord allowed Satan to incite David. But the reason was because the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. There were things taking place in Israel that were not pleasing to God. And so Satan was able to come in and incite David, and David was was in this situation now. David is in this situation where he's being led astray because he's allowed his heart to be opened to things that are not according to God's will. Have you ever noticed when you just open yourself up to the idea of doing something that's not within God's will, according to his word, you oftentimes find yourself doing that very thing? Isn't it amazing how you can plant a seed in your mind or the devil will, and, and, and that just takes root, and then it begins to bear fruit, and before you know it, you're done. Israel had begun to rely on their king, King David. And they also began to rely on their own military strength in the latter years of David's reign. You know, there's, there's nothing like a nation that has become overconfident and full of itself. And rather than relying on God, begins to rely on their own strength. And David, in this mindset, as the whole nation's beginning to sort of rebel against God and and, and act independently of God, he desired to count Israel's forces. Why? In order to assess the strength of his army. I'm going to count all of my forces. I'm going to look at how strong I am. And this sinful desire began in his heart as pride and self-reliance. Beware of those words. Pride, that's a devil's sin. And self-reliance is when we look to God and say, no, it's okay, God, I got this. I can handle it from here. I don't really need you to do this for me or that for me. Because, you know, thank God your wisdom has given me the ability to make this decision without you. That's pride. David was trusting in his own strength. He wasn't trusting solely upon the Lord. His heart would have been proven faithful to the Lord had he repented, but he didn't. And so the Lord allowed Satan the opportunity to try and convince David to act upon that sinful desire. God will allow you to act upon your sinful desires. And believe me, Satan will entice you to do so. So God will allow you and Satan will entice you, but ultimately you get to make the decision by free will as to whether you're going to obey God and his word or succumb to your flesh Or follow the temptation that Satan brings into your life. That is your decision and the outcome. The results cannot be blamed on anyone but you and you alone. Well, the Lord wanted to deal with David's pride in a good way. To deal with his self-reliance. He also wanted to deal with Israel's reliance upon their king and their own military strength. So in all of this, God allows a set of circumstances to take place. And we read in verses 2 through 7 that David ordered Joab and the army commanders to count all of the fighting men within Israel. Let's read verse 2. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba, which was the southernmost point of Israel, to Dan, which was the northernmost point. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? 
The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David, and in all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in just Judah, which would be the southern kingdom. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was so repulsive, or was repulsive, to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. So they're making decisions that are contrary to God's will. They're doing things that are not pleasing to God, and they're being led by a king who's making those decisions as well. David wanted to register them. Why would you register them? Well, I remember when I turned 18. I remember I got that little postcard in the mail. Most, I guess most men get them. I don't think the ladies get them. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's changed now. But the men have to register for the draft, selective service. We had to fill out that form. And I can remember it was, you know, the 80s. (laughs) And uh, there was a lot of talk about war because at that time, I think Grenada was taking place and Libya. And I can remember thinking, am I going to go to war? Is something going to happen and I'm going to have to fight in a war? But when you register for something like that, the point is for the government to get an accurate headcount of how many available young men there are if they did have to invoke the draft and go to war. It's actually pretty smart, (laughs) but obviously David was doing this independent of the Lord's leading. So the Lord had not commanded this. David wanted to register them in order to draft them for service in a time of war. Now, the Lord had commanded Moses, if you'll remember, to take two censuses, two, during the time of the book of Numbers, one in chapter number, uh, Numbers chapter 1 and in chapter 26. So when God told Moses to number the people, it was the right thing to do. But the Lord had not commanded David to take a census at this time. And in fact, I mean, let's, let's be honest for a minute It was probably a necessary thing for them to number the people in the wilderness. And actually, that's one of the reasons they call that book the Book of Numbers. There were two censuses taken. It was a necessary and important thing in order to properly serve the people. Joab and the army commanders initially protested, but David overruled them. He's the king, right? Now, you need to know this, and if you've studied the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, if you're familiar with Joab, You know this much. He was a wicked opportunist. He was not a nice guy. He was a murderer. He was a, a, could be a vicious adversary. But even he could see that David's intentions were evil. Counting God's people in order to serve them like Moses is honorable. But counting them for any other reason is just pride. It's just pride. You know, do you remember a couple of years ago now, maybe months when you'd go into a store like Trader Joe's or ShopRite, even Costco to a degree, and they were counting you when you came in because you're only allowed to have so many people. Remember waiting outside in the cold to get into the supermarket because they only wanted to have 50 people in there. And now we find out none of that made any difference whatsoever. So that's encouraging, right? Speaking of leadership leading us down the wrong, <laughs> wrong avenue. Uh, but you know... The idea there was to count people, not to be 
bragging and say, oh, 100 people came into our store today. It was, listen, we're, we're trying to keep people safe, or we think this will keep people safe, even though it didn't. And the idea was, okay, we're just counting for, for a noble purpose. There's a time where that's necessary, like the censuses that we take every 10 years. The idea is, where are the people in our nation? They should be properly represented. It's, it's constitutional. It's part of what we do to serve the people. But counting people like David did was just a source of pride. He wasn't even fighting a war. He just wanted to boast and brag and feel good about himself. You remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 of the book of Daniel? When he stood up and he said, oh, this Babylon that I have built, and he took all the credit for it. He was reduced to an animal, and he, for seven years he lived like an animal in the wilderness because when you went crazy in those days, they just sort of let you loose. They were afraid to harm you or to do anything with you, and they believed that they would, you would catch whatever they had if you were too close to them. So they just sort of opened the door like you might do with a cat in your neighborhood and just, just let it go. And they let him go, and he lived like that for seven years until he realized that the Lord reigns on heaven and earth, till he was humbled in the sight of God. Well, there's going to be a time of humbling. How do you avoid a time of humbling? I guess the simplest way to avoid humbling is to not allow yourself to be lifted up in pride. But how do you do that? I mean, really. It's hard, isn't it? It's so easy when things are going well and you're feeling good about yourself to be filled with pride. How do you keep that from happening? Well, you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Because God resists the proud, but exalts the humble. How do you stay humble? I think there's a just very simple way you can stay humble. That is, worship God. You worship God, you're never going to see yourself as a little God. You're always going to see yourself before God where you belong. Another way, read his word. His word will convict you. It'll keep you humble. And then if you really, really need more help being humble, just ask the people that love you most to tell you the truth about you. They will, and then you'll be humble. But you have to be willing to hear those things. David wasn't willing to hear anything. The entire census, we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 24, where we have some more information, it took the commanders nine months and 20 days to complete. And in this, David's direction showed poor leadership. Just poor leadership. The census took a considerable amount of time and effort. It allocated precious resources to a futile endeavor, and it distracted the leaders from serving the people. Sounds like the annual budget in Washington. Well, David's direction showed disregard for his commanders. He overruled their strong objections and refused to listen to them. When you refuse to listen to people around you, you're probably lifted up in pride. Probably, not always, But almost certainly, if you're not listening to people who care about you and giving you an alternate opinion and you're overruling, overruling usually ends in a need to be humbled. So he ordered them to do something they considered repulsive and evil. And Joab reported that there were 1.1 million fighting men in Israel with 470,000 in Judah alone. Now, in 2 Samuel 24, we're told there was as many as 1.3 fighting men in Israel, about 8 100,000 in Judah. And this, this so repulsed the men who were commanded to do this that they only reported the 1.1 million. They, there was more, but they didn't even report it to David because it was such a repulsive command. So this total may not have included Israel's existing army, which was about 288,000. So more than likely, they lowered the number on purpose 
just because it was just such a, 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 the wrong thing for David to do. Anyway, he intentionally excluded the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in his final total, total as well. So he's trying to not pad the estimate, but actually bring it down. So the Lord, <clears throat> we're told in verse 7, initially punished Israel in some way. We're not even told how. It just says in verse 7 that this command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. What does that mean? We don't know. There was some way in which God punished Israel, and it was obvious, and they realized that something was wrong. And then David realized that he had sinned. Because of this punishment that came upon the people, uh, who knows what it was. But whatever it was, it certainly caused David to realize he had made a mistake. Look at verse, uh, verses 8 through 13. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. <clears throat> the Lord said to Gad, David's seer, that's the prophet, Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says, I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Imagine if your parents, when you were a kid, pulled you aside and said, you get to choose one of these three punishments. I could tell you what would have happened with me. My dad would have given us all three. There certainly wasn't any choice in the matter. If he could think of three punishments to punish us with, we'd get all three. That's just the way it was with us growing up. But here, our God is merciful to David. I says, choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. I'd be like, is there a door number four? Remember, let's make a deal. Is there a door number four? Do I have another option? Yeah, you had that option before you did what you knew was wrong. If you want to avoid choices like this, <laughs> don't make the choice that David made that was a choice to be proud and self-reliant. It's always easier to make the right choice up front than to suffer the consequences of the wrong choice. Amen? So now he has these three choices. Not a good one in there, right? Not one of those is a good choice. In fact, I look at the last one, I think that one sounds to be the scariest. But here's what we know. <clears throat> we read in verse 13, David said to Gad, I am, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a, a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. And then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? 
I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family. But do not let this plague remain on your people. Noble gesture on the part of David. But the damage is already done. As is so often the case when leaders make bad decisions, the people suffer. In this case, it was 70,000. And whether it's 13 soldiers in Afghanistan or 70,000 individuals in Israel, the blame is squarely on those that make the decisions. And God knows that and we know that. And it's not fair and it's not right. And it's not just. But God sees all things. Amen? And thank him for that. But it's sad when people suffer for the stupidity and incompetence of leadership. I think about what's going on right now in Europe. Clearly, there are leaders that are making decisions there, and I'm not going to weigh in on what I think is happening because I really don't know. I just, I just know that war is never a good thing. And children and women and innocents suffer because leaders make decisions based on what they think is the right thing to do. I, I'm pretty certain that God is not the one uh, directing this. This is all upon those leaders making those decisions. And I don't think that we are blameless either in our country. So, as I look at this, I realize it's sad. It really is when people have to suffer because leaders make bad decisions. David realized he had sinned against the Lord by ordering the census in Israel. He realized that. He knew that. He understood that. And he responded by confessing his sin and repenting of his foolishness. Oh, he knew it was foolish. He was convicted because he recognized that he had sinned. He confessed because he admitted it to the Lord. You would think David would just receive God's forgiveness and there wouldn't be any consequences, right? No, there are consequences to our foolishness. There are consequences that fall upon others and the ones we love and care about because of our stupid decisions. You know, I can tell you, if you make a decision to get in the car under the influence of some substance, and even if you don't crash into a vehicle or do property damage, even if you just get caught and there was no damage, you're going to bring a heap of trouble into your own life and on those within your family. Now you can't get to work because you can't drive. You've lost your license. Now you have to pay thousands of dollars a year in surcharges, and your insurance just went through the roof. All of that comes upon the person even if there isn't a situation where you got into an accident and actually killed somebody or hurt somebody or maimed somebody. So just think about this before we make those decisions. You know, we, a lot of times we're in the midst of that. We pray, oh God, please take away the consequences. Please take away the consequences. And sometimes he mercifully allows us to avoid severe consequences. But I got news for you. Most of the time he's going to allow us to experience them because we learn through them. If I didn't experience the consequences of my stupid actions and dumb things that I said and did in my late teens to early 20s, I wouldn't be the man I am today. I needed to learn from the consequences. I can remember one time I was involved in an accident. And I won't get into all the details, but I remember at one particular point hearing the police officer read me my rights. And I just, I, I looked, my life flashed before me and I thought about my parents and how this would embarrass them if this got out. And what was going to happen and how many fines I was going to have to pay and whether I'd lose my license. Fortunately, I hired a good lawyer and I didn't have to suffer the consequences that I thought I would. There was just property damage and so they let me off easy. There was no one hurt in the accident. 
But I realized at that moment that I was being taken into the police station that I had done something that very well could have brought severe consequences on me and on my family. It certainly would have been humiliating and embarrassing and shameful had my parents found out. So when I think about that, I think, thank God that he was merciful with me and that I didn't suffer the full consequences that I thought I was going to have to experience. But there were consequences, like a big check I had to write to the lawyer. But still, brothers and sisters, if I can just implore you, if I can just beg you to think twice before you do something you know is wrong, we're not talking about making an honest mistake. We're not talking about doing something and not realizing it's wrong. When you make that decision to do something you know is wrong and is repulsive to God, please, please stop, think, take a minute, recognize there could be severe consequences, and they may not just fall upon you. They could fall upon your wife or your your husband, your kids, those you work with, those you live with. Please. It's too late now for David to avoid the consequences. There will be consequences. So he desired to be cleansed. He asked the Lord to forgive his sin, and, and, and indeed the Lord did, but there were still consequences. He wanted a change. He, he understood his folly. He knew that he had done wrong. So the Lord sent that prophet Gad to communicate the consequences of David's sin. Now, I love the fact the Lord responded immediately through his spokesman. There was no lag here. That, that God was responding immediately to David. And Gad, like Nathan the prophet, was a prophet that the Lord used to speak to David. David was able to hear the voice of the Lord through these prophets like Gad and Nathan. Gad had been with David since long before he became king. He allowed David to submit to his discipline and to choose the consequences of his sin. And let's go back over the choices again. Again, what would you choose? Well, again, I would like to choose not to have any consequences. Thank you very much. But if you had to, he could choose to suffer three years of famine in the land. Some of you are thinking, well, you know, I could lose a little weight. might not be so bad. No, famine in the land, that's bad. People die. He could choose to suffer three months of defeat at the hands of the enemies. That's bad and humiliating at the same time. And then he could choose to suffer three days. So three years, three months, or three days of plague in the land. The one thing you can say is that three days would go by more quickly than three months or three years, right? So in that sense, it's an appealing choice. But, you know, we just went through a plague in the land. And how I wish it was only three days. It was more like two years. And we all know that when something like this comes along, not everyone survives. And lots of people in our nation and in the world are no longer with us because of the COVID virus. And in general, because of poor health, combination of poor health and not taking care of yourself. And of course, the COVID virus. Regardless of how you count those numbers, because there's all kinds of people that suggest, I might even be one of them, that those numbers are somewhat inflated. Regardless, we we all know someone who more than likely knows someone who, who suffered or even died through that pandemic. So we know that it's not a good choice, but there's a reason David makes that choice. He chose to suffer three days of plague in the land because he would rather be at the Lord's mercy than suffer at the hands of his earthly enemies. And he would rather fall into the merciful hand of God, hoping that, well, he said it would be three days, but God is merciful, and maybe he'll relent. As it turns out, we'll see, he was correct. He was finally trusting in the Lord, David, finally trusting in the Lord. You see that? And no longer trusting in his own strength. 
See, if he was still trusting in his own strength, he might have said, we'll take the famine. We'll do like Joseph. We'll figure something out. Or, you know what? We'll take the the enemies. And, you know, we're strong. We'll fight. And we'll beat them anyway. But, you know, in humility, he said, you know, let us fall into the hands of the Lord. Because God is merciful. And the Lord immediately sent a plague on Israel, which lasted for the next three days. Just three days. And in three days, the plague claimed the lives of 70,000 people in Israel. What kind of plague was it? I have no idea, but this plague was not just some pandemic. Because we're told the angel appeared. This destroying angel appeared and brought death and destruction. Not unlike the Passover, he brought death and destruction on Israel. And only on Israel. The Lord showed mercy, though, toward Jerusalem. As he was about to afflict the city, the Lord said, enough. Can you say that word with me? Enough. And David was correct to bet on God's mercy. Because when God saw the suffering of his people and he saw them repenting in sackcloth and ashes and he saw them crying out to God and asking for mercy, we all know that we serve a merciful God who's abounding in mercy, slow to anger, compassionate, and abounding in love. David knew that. God says that about himself. So falling into the hands of a merciful God is always your best option, even when you deserve and have even earned the consequences of your sin. So maybe you're suffering the consequences of your sin even now in your life, sins that you committed years ago that have wreaked havoc in your life and in your family. It's not too late. Fall into the hands of a merciful God. I promise you this, it's always better than to fall into the hands of your enemies. David understood that. He knew that. So, David was wise to choose to be at the Lord's mercy in judgment. In fact, we know that his mercies are new every morning. The great is his faithfulness. He's a compassionate and loving God. His mercies are new every morning, Lamentations 3 tells us. So, great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. Look to God. Even in judgment, look to God. So the Lord commanded the angel of the Lord to withdraw his hand from judgment. The people, by the way, let me just point this out. It seems obvious to me, but just in case you missed it, the people actually saw the angel of the Lord as he was afflicting the people. Imagine what that must have looked like. Now, in my mind, I imagine the angel in the clouds, and he looks really awesome and, and scary, and it's fearful and all that. But I don't know. I just know whatever they saw, clearly it's described in this way, and it must have been impressive. Was the angel really large? Was he just, I don't know. But whatever it was, they all saw it. And the Lord's command, enough, saved many lives from certain death. Do you know that that is exactly why we're still here on this planet? I believe with all my heart that after World War I, God said enough. After World War II, God said enough. If there's a World War III, he'll say enough. We know in the last days, all of the wars that take place in the last days, you, you get to a place where there's still people on the earth because God says enough. You can read the book of Revelation. At one point, a quarter of the world's population is killed, but God says enough. Then a third of the remaining population is killed, but God says enough. And then finally, at the end of a thousand years of peace, all the world rebels against God. And he says, enough. And heaven and earth pass away, and he creates a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And we'll be a part of that because we are members of his family. 
We are his sons and daughters. And God will finally say enough. And when he says enough at that point, there'll be no more sin, no more weeping, no more death, no more crying, nothing. And I look forward to God doing that work in the new heaven and in the new earth. Amen? That's not today, unfortunately. Even if the rapture were to take place this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow afternoon, and even if, even if uh, the tribulation period took place uh, and a thousand years of peace, I mean, it's still going to be a long time before that happens. A long time. So, in the meantime, we trust God. So, the Lord commanded him to withdraw. And the angel relented just as he approached the threshing floor of Arona. David interceded for Jerusalem just as the angel of the Lord was about to afflict the city. David actually saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth. The angel had a drawn sword in his hand extended over the city, and David and the elders, at this point, had clothed themselves in sackcloth and fell face down. Those are the garments of repentance. They were repenting of David's sin of all of their sins. For remember, Israel had sinned greatly against the Lord, and as a result, David also sinned greatly against the Lord, so they needed to repent. And I believe that you need to remember this. When we're experiencing the consequences of sin in our lives, it is still never too late to repent and ask for mercy. We serve a merciful God. Never forget that. Never forget that. David did not. He did not forget that. And so David interceded for Jerusalem just as the angel of the Lord was about to flip the city. He prayed, and he took responsibility for his sin as the shepherd king of Israel. The failures and the sins of shepherds destroy even the innocent sheep. They do, and he he understood that. He was willing to bear the burden and pay the price for his sheep. The Lord had responded in mercy to David's intercession for the city, but 70,000 had already died. Well, this brought about the end of the three days of plague in the land of Israel, and I suspect it was somewhat less than three days, given the fact that the Lord said enough. And this is what we learn. Let's look at verses uh, 18 all the way down to the rest of this section in chapter 22. First, First or second, yeah, first verse. In verse 18, the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that God had spoken in the name of the Lord. And while Aaron was threshing wheat, he turned and he saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. And then David approached. And when Aaron looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. And David said to him, let me have this sight of your threshing floor, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Aaron said, David, take it. Let my Lord, the king, do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for a burnt offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. Give all this. But King David replied to Aaron, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Aaron 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And he called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven. 
on the altar of burnt offering. And then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the desert, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time on the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord, or of God, because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So, we learn something here. The plague came to an end. It was over now because of the hearts of the people. God brought about this plague to bring people to repentance. Okay, let's just hit the pause button there for a minute. When terrible things happen in our world, when awful things happen in our culture, don't blame God. Never blame God. They're almost always the consequences of sin. Almost always. Either personal sin or corporate sin. But I can promise you, because we serve a merciful God, that God will work through those things to bring about repentance. Amen? You you know what I've learned over 35 years of ministry? When things go crazy in the world, churches are full. We were full, really full on Sunday. And I suspect, although I don't know for sure, that the craziness going on in our world right now might have something to do with it. It might. People find their way to the house of the Lord when there's a war taking place. People find themselves to the house of the Lord, and it's interesting, when those houses of the Lord were open during COVID, people found their way to those homes of worship or houses of worship that were open. If the doors were closed, they couldn't very well find their way there. But isn't it interesting how the the devil tried to close those doors? But what I've learned is that when... People see things getting a little scary in our world. When things are going a little crazy in our nation, people tend to look for God. And isn't that a good thing? I don't know how many of you guys were going to church or were Christians shortly after 9-11. But I can tell you absolutely, when we were in New York City, that the following Thursday, because 9-11 was a Tuesday, So the following Thursday, we were all in church, and church was full. And I remember the weeks following, the church was filled with people. People were coming we had never seen before, finding their way to our worship services, because 9-11 was a tragedy. It was severe. And here's what I've learned about the COVID years, as I'm calling them now. I've learned that these last few years have done a few things, or God has worked through them in a particular way. One of the things we see clearly is that some churches closed their doors and never reopened. Other churches never closed their doors. And now the biggest problems they have are the problems we have. Like, where do you put all the cars? Where do you put all the people? Where do you put all the kids? Those are good problems, amen? I've also seen that people on a personal level who were really, truly serving the Lord just continued to serve the Lord. And people who really weren't, they were kind of playing at it, stopped showing up. Many of them did. So what I've seen is God has used it to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's used it to increase those churches that are faithful and close those churches that weren't. 
And that's not my business. That's God's business. I just need to make sure that I'm faithful to do what God has called me to do as a pastor, as a ministry leader. I don't need to be dealing out death and judgment. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying we were faithful. God does what he's good at, and that is his perfect will. But I've learned something. God used this horrific, miserable time in our nation's history to reach people and to bring Christians, and I would say probably the most significant thing I've seen, to bring Christians to repentance. I think we all got a little bit more serious with God these last two years. I know I did. (laughs) I think we all just realized, you know what, time is short. And it's not time to be messing around with sin or with things that would distract us from what he's really called us to do. You know, somehow all of a sudden, those things that we thought were so important didn't matter anymore. What really mattered was people, reaching them with the gospel, serving God, being in his word, being in fellowship, being in prayer. Those were the things that were so important to us, and I hopefully still are and will continue to be so, because our world isn't getting any easier to live in. Have you noticed? Apparently nobody talks about COVID anymore, and that's fine with me. But now we're talking about war in Europe and potentially throughout the globe. It's never really good news, is it? But it is good news. Because in the midst of all of this, the gospel is being preached. And of course, we pray for those poor individuals caught in these ridiculous wars, unjust wars. But God allows these things for his purposes. And while I don't ever believe he's the author of these things, he does allow, as he allowed Satan to incite David and judgment to come upon Israel, he's allowing these things in our world. So don't cry out, where is God? How can there be a God if this is taking place in Ukraine? Don't say those things. Because God is in every moment, every instant of our world at every moment. It doesn't mean that everything that happens in our world is good. It doesn't. God allows these things, which is hard sometimes to understand or accept. Well, the Lord sent the prophet Gad to communicate the payment for David's sin. He did. And, you know, uh, there was going to be a sacrifice. And so the Lord responded immediately through his spokesman. He commanded David to build an altar, an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona. He was to build the altar at the very location that the angel's hand was stayed. So at the Temple Mount, the angel stopped, and this is where they built the altar. This land was owned by a Jebusite, one of the conquered enemies of Israel, who originally dwelt in Jerusalem before David took over the city. Now, the plague was only temporarily stayed, kind of like a ceasefire, if you will, until the altar of sacrifice could be built. The altar of sacrifices would ultimately brought an end to the plague. What is a sacrifice? It's an act of worship that costs you something. It's an act of worship that costs you something. I think for a long time in our culture today, people quote-unquote worship God pretty much didn't cost them anything. Worshiping God costs us something today, doesn't it? It does. And it will continue to cost us as the world becomes more and more dark. But God is, God is honored by our sacrifice. When we worship God, we worship God through sacrifice. Sacrifice is when we make a decision to do something that's not convenient to us or may even put us in danger or jeopardy because it's the right thing to do and because it honors God and you may not be popular for doing it. But that's what sacrifice is. And David's attitude is great because I'm not going to worship the Lord with something that costs me nothing. 
I'm not going to worship God with something that doesn't cost me something. That's not worship. That's not sacrifice. You know, David purchased that threshing floor for the site of the altar of the Lord. He has big plans to build the temple, and this is where it's going to go. Aaron and his four sons actually saw the angel of the Lord. They hid themselves, so whatever they saw was pretty scary. And then Aaron, it's just really kind of amazing because he graciously offered to David the property, the oxen, the wood for the sacrifice. He offered everything, really, just take it. He even offered to give David the wheat that he was threshing for a grain offering. See, Aaron was more interested in stopping the plague than keeping his personal property. You can understand that. But David refused to receive his property without paying the full price. And by the way, our Lord Jesus paid the full price for our sins. He didn't take the easy way out when Satan said, you just bow down, say something nice about me, worship me, I'll give you this world. Jesus paid that price for each and every one of us, all of us. Well, David desired to worship the Lord, and he did so through sacrifice. Worship that costs us nothing is worth the price that's paid. As we know, St. Norfolk Jesus, the world he came to save for a simple affirmation. Worship me. But Jesus endured the cross and paid for the sins of the whole world. Amen? So David purchased the threshing floor and the oxen, as we're told in 2 Samuel 24, for 50 shekels of silver. But he didn't just buy that. He didn't just buy the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, again recorded in 2 Samuel. <coughs> Here we're told David purchased the entire site for 600 shekels of gold in verse 25. Bought the whole site. See, he at this point discerned that the Lord had led him to the site of Solomon's temple. He had been praying, where am I going to put the temple? He had been putting money aside and putting all of the the workers aside, as we'll see, but getting everything set for the building of the temple, which would be built by Solomon. But what he didn't know is where we're going to build it. Now he knew exactly where. And by the way, just a point, since everyone seems to think that that land belongs to anyone other than Israel, there need not be any confusion as to who or to whom this piece of land rightfully belongs. That is the Temple Mount. David clearly paid hard cash for it. So I don't think anyone can argue with that. Of course, many would disagree. While David built an altar to the Lord, he sacrificed consecration and fellowship offerings with the Lord. He consecrated himself and he enjoyed fellowship with the Lord and did so through the shedding of blood. There cannot be remission or forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant. And under the new covenant, it's the blood of Jesus. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar. That must have been an awesome sight. And he confirmed that he was pleased. The Lord answered prayer and ended three days of plague in the land of Israel. The Lord commanded the angel of the Lord to put his sword back in his sheath. It's over. Mercy has triumphed over judgment because blood was shed. Mercy has triumphed over judgment because blood was shed. That is the message of the gospel right there in this chapter in First Chronicles. David actually saw the angel of the Lord stand down and stop the plague. The plague had prevented him from sacrificing in the tabernacle in Gibeah, and he had to do it right there. And then David declared that Solomon's temple would be built there 
on the threshing floor of Aaron. Now look at, look at verse 1 in chapter 22 again. Then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. He knew now where they would build. The temple would house the ark, which was at the moment kept in a tent in Jerusalem. It would also contain the other furniture of the tabernacle, which was at that time in Gibeon. And the brazen altar would be placed in the temple court. So in a sense, when you look at this from beginning to end, David goes from a place of pride to a place of worship. Are you with me? He goes from a place of pride to a place of worship, but in between pride and worship is repentance and forgiveness and mercy and sacrifice and bloodshed. That's exactly what you and I, who are in Christ, have experienced. We've gone from a place of pride to a place of worship because we've repented of our sins, cried out to God for mercy, and claimed the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus on the cross for our sins, and therefore salvation of our souls. Amen? That's how salvation takes place. Putting your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins. Well, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And then David now is just obsessed with worshiping God. I mean, that is his main thing. He, he's, he knows he can't build the temple, but he's going to do everything he can short of breaking ground. Let's look. And I, what I want to do just as we close, because it's really helpful to read this next chapter, I'm just going to read the rest of chapter 22, make a few comments, and then we'll close. This gives you an idea of what David was obsessed with after this incident. Verse 2, chapter 22. So David gave orders to assemble the aliens living in Israel. And from among them he appointed stone cutters to prepare dressed stone for the building of the house of God. He provided a large amount of iron to make nails for the doors and of the gateways and for the fittings, and more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided more cedar logs than could be counted, for the Sidonians and, and Tyrians had brought large numbers of them to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house is to be built for the Lord, the house. Uh, to be built for the Lord, should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. But this word of the Lord came to me, you have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, which sounds like the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, and may you have success and build the house of the Lord your God, as he said you would. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will have success if you are careful 
to observe the decrees and laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed, and wood and stone, and you may add to them. You have many workmen, stone cutters, masons, and carpenters, as well as men skilled in every kind of work, in gold and silver, bronze and iron, craftsmen beyond number. Now begin the work, and the Lord will be with you. Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon. He said to them, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not granted you rest on every side? For he has handed the inhabitants of the land over to me, and the land is subject to the Lord and to his people. Now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. Begin to build the sanctuary of the Lord God so that you may bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the sacred articles belonging to God into the temple that will be built for the name of the Lord Jehovah. That's David's encouragement, very self-explanatory. David spent the majority of the rest of his reign making extensive preparations for the temple to be built. He was obsessed with worshiping God. He was a worship leader, a worshiper. He assembled all the necessary workers and provided all the building supplies and charged his son Solomon to build the temple once he became king, which would be in a few years. Now, David commanded all the leaders of Israel to support Solomon in building the temple as well. David provided Solomon with the necessary plans. For building the temple. We'll see that when we get to chapter 28. And he provided Solomon with the instructions for the temple priests and the sacred articles. Again, so we'll, we'll see that in chapter 28. And he received all of the details. You may not know this, but in chapter 28 of this book in verse 19, we're told, he received all of the details of the plan to build the temple directly from the Lord. So, was David disappointed? We talked about this a few weeks ago. I believe it was in chapter 17. Yes, David was disappointed that he wasn't going to get to build the temple. But he didn't let, them, you know, didn't let that stop him from doing everything he could to support his son in building the temple. So David comes out of this tragedy, as I've said, starting with pride. And he ultimately, through repentance and the shedding of blood, becomes a worshiper. I pray that you've had that experience in your life. That you've gone from pride to humility through repentance, confession of sin, and crying out to be forgiven by Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. David was saved. David was delivered from the plague. The plague of death rests upon each and every one of us. And of course, every one of us will will die should the Lord tarry. And if he doesn't, then we'll be raptured. But in either case, understand this. We're all going to die. We're all going to pass from this world. The question is, what about the next life? Have you thought about that? Because heaven is filled with worshipers and only worshipers. Are you a worshiper? Have you gone from pride to worship? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. You've made a way where there was no way. You've called us to salvation through your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. Lord, we've been delivered from death to life. May each and every heart here and those listening online recognize their their need to cry out to you 
to recognize the cross as payment for their sins and the resurrection as the promise of eternal life. Lord God, we cry out to you. We thank you, Lord. If we're caught up in sin or pride, may we avoid those consequences by repenting even now. And if we're suffering the consequences of previous sins, Lord, may we now cry out to you for mercy. May you be merciful upon us. Lord God, we ask that you would do these things in our life for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.